morning, friends. Good to see you. Do we have any sunglass aisles? Yeah, a little bit. All right. Owen and Eagle, we love you. We're not in purgatory or punished church discipline. I'm glad it's you guys. I can make fun of you a little bit. Also, I'm going to pray in a minute. You guys can move if you want. Um, one more announcement that didn't make it in there that I want to let you know. Um, we have some people who usually park in the Metro Market parking lot. Here's the bummer about going to church here at Bruce City. I'm going to tell you the main drag, I think. You can talk to everybody else about what they think the drag about Bruce City Church is. I think the, main, the worst thing about Bruce City Church is we don't have a parking lot. Like We are landlocked here. Our, 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 I've been told that this looks like an upside-down ark, our beautiful building. Well, it's kind of like we're floating on, we are an island right now because we don't own that parking lot. You saw the signs as you rolled in. We don't have any parking lot, so you have to do street parking around here. We had somebody who was parked across the street last week who got towed and had to pay a lot of money to get their car back, and it was really sad, really terrible. So just, they're cracking down on parking across the street, so don't park there. And if you are parked there, I'm going to pray in a minute. You can leave, and there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Think you'll be okay? But no guarantees. Also, we have had a relationship with the Jewish Community Center, which is like a, a block away. We're going to be calling them and see if we can still park there, and we'll let you know about that. But for right now, keep it on the street. You've got to walk a little bit. It's good for you. It keeps your heart healthy, all the things, all right? And if you um, are disabled in any way, if you're watching online and you haven't been able to be here because we haven't had a, a wheelchair ramp because of our ter the terrible placement of our property, we, tried, we redid our front of our building and we tried to get a wheelchair ramp up there. would have been dangerous and not to code. We couldn't do it. But we do have, for the first time ever, we are handicap accessible. We have a wheelchair ramp coming in and going out. So if you, uh, yes, please clap for that. It's long, long overdue. Part of the real drag about being in a beautiful building that's 120 some years old is that it's not accessible. But now we are. So if you're here, you're not here because of that, we'd love for you to join us. And all you have to do is call and we'll help you open the back door. You come in through the parking lot and leave in the parking lot. I think that's all the housekeeping announcements I have. Let's pray. Now is when you guys can move if you want. <laughs> um, God, I'm grateful for this story. All of us are sitting here, and it's so easy to see ourselves as part of our little myopic story. It's so easy to get obsessed with me and my world and the people, the small amount of people in my world. But I'm glad I get to sit here and to be in this community of people and know that there's all sorts of stories in this room and watching online. Stories where beautiful things happen this week and heartbreaking things happen this week and everything in between. And we can still sit here and ask as we did, Spirit of the living God, would you fall afresh on me? we all need you in different ways, but we all need you, Holy Spirit. And I'm glad to be sitting here with brothers and sisters and side by side as we enter into this ancient story, thousands of years old. What a weird thing to do. But I love that we get to see your heart and see how you acted in history for the last several thousand years that we follow this same God who people were trying to figure out 
over 3,000 years ago, asking the same questions we're asking. Where is God and what is God like? Who am I to God? Would you help us find ourselves in this ancient story, this ancient narrative? Would you bring it to life for us in some way, shape, or form? I'm grateful for this time. I'm grateful for these ones here, the ones listening online. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So two weeks ago, we started this new sermon series in the book of Exodus. Michelle, can we get that beautiful sermon series graphic that I don't think Kelly Wagner's here, but look at that. Isn't that fun? So fun. If, Kelly, if you're watching online, we love you and we're so grateful for you. We started this new sermon series two weeks ago in the book of Exodus. And interestingly enough, we didn't even open up the book of Exodus, see, because before we dive into a book of the Bible, we need to know about this book of the Bible. What, what's going on? When was it written? Who was it written by? What, what's, the, what's the purpose of this book? We asked all the questions two weeks ago. And I know some of you, many of you weren't here two weeks ago. If that's you, you're off the hook. I don't have last two weeks ago, we had a trailer of a movie that nobody saw with Christian Bale and Ben Stewart of Exodus of Gods and Men or something like that. I don't know. It was epic. And I had this really catchy introduction. If you weren't here, you should check it out. I think it was pretty solid. (laughs) I don't have a catchy introduction for you this morning at all. Not at all. I'm sorry. But instead of an introduction, I have a pop quiz, if you were here. Let me hear some of, if you, if you were here two weeks ago and you remember, now it's time to think back two weeks ago, what did Randy say two weeks ago? What do we say are kind of some of the things that we need to know as we enter into this book called Exodus, this ancient book? Any, any brave souls willing to shout out, Jeff? Jeff's, Jeff's a funny guy. Yes, yes. Very good, Jeff. No, no, no. This is part of church is a community. That's why I'm trying to ask you guys questions so we, it doesn't feel like you're here to listen to the dude so that we're here together and that, that this diving into the scriptures is an exercise we do together. Jeff just said uh, that we learned about what Exodus is, which is a book, we've taken it as a book of history, but actually it's not just like a history book. Perfect, Jeff. We're going to get to that in a, in a minute. The type of book it is. What else did we talk about two weeks ago? What about Exodus? Not written by Moses. We've been told for since Sunday school all the way on through that the first five books were, of the Bible were written by Moses. Turns out, probably not. Now, I hope that does, this shouldn't shipwreck your faith, who, who wrote it. It's, this, is, this is widely, widely believed and, and kind of known among scholars that most likely Moses did not write this, but that rather it was a group of probably about four rabbinical schools ancient rabbinical schools who wrote the book of Exodus, who wrote the whole, the whole uh, group of books surrounded by Exodus. And if, 
I think we're going to have, every once in a while, I'm going to do like a Wednesday night extra, correct, extra credit where we can come in and I can talk about things like what were these rabbinical schools and why, why do they, we think that they wrote this and where do we get these clues from. If you want to get really geeky, I'm going to give you some opportunities, but not yet. We've got to cover some more geeky stuff. So thank you, Jake. What else, anything else from two weeks ago that you remember? Aaron. Mythology. Now, that's a dirty word to many Christians. I should just probably get into it so I can explain some of these things. But there's some not pure mythology, perhaps, but maybe mythologized history. I'll get into it in a minute. You guys have, are doing very, very well. Anything else from two weeks ago that stuck, stuck out? How it points to Jesus. How it points to Jesus. Thank you, Beulah. Excellent. Was that the same point you had back there? Jesus, the hermeneutical principle we're going to be going through. If you weren't here two weeks ago and these words sound like gibberish, just give me a minute. So the things that we learned that I'm just, you guys, perfect job. Like you, you remembered very, very well. Everyone gets an A. Uh, let me just go through in case that, that, that was confusing. In the Bible, we have about, give or take, about seven different forms of literature, genres, what smart literature people call them, genres, seven lit- genres. There's wisdom literature, there's history, there's, there's poetry, there's gospel, there's these letters and epistles, there's apocryphal writing, there's prophetic writing, there's all these different genres or forms of, of literature, and Exodus falls under what a lot of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament does, which is historical. But see, there's a problem there. And the problem there is when we classify books of the Bible as history, we think that they are actually history books. And by history books, I mean like history books that you, that you studied in high school or history books that you studied in college if you went to college, history books that you studied in middle school. We think that the, these historical books of the Bible are just pure history, an objective kind of telling of what happened. Now, first of all, there is no objective version of history. We said that. Let's just get that out of the way. There is none. We all have a, have a cultural, social, historical location that we find ourselves in, and so our telling of history is through our lens. But the Bible is not just a pure book of history. That's where we get into trouble when we think that it is. The, the, the book of Exodus is historical, but it's not just historical. What we call the book of Exodus, what biblical scholars call the book of Exodus, and historical books like the book of Exodus, and this, this really important word before historical, theological history. The book of Exodus is a book of theological history. And what that means is that what happened in the book is important, but it's not the most important thing. It's not the point of the book. What does this phrase theological history mean that the point of the book is? It means that the book is about God. It's giving us this, telling this story that we believe is is rooted in history and is historical in some way, shape, or form. But there are some biblical scholars, many actually, this is very unsettling, but we said this two weeks ago, there are many biblical scholars who think that the, the Exodus story didn't happen at all because there's no archaeological evidence that it actually did. We have no archaeological evidence that a, a, an exodus of two million people happened. 
And there's problems with the idea of two million people exiting from Exodus, or exiting from Egypt. If you actually took the whole number of two million people and lined them up in rows of eight, that's a lot to begin with, but in rows of eight, you would have the, the Israelite people, the Hebrew people, climbing up Mount Sinai, the first part of them, the first of the, those two million, and you'd have the end of that two million still in, ex, in Egypt. It's a problem. So some, many biblical scholars don't think it happened at all. And many of us think, well, it's time to check our faith because the Bible says it happened. And maybe if it didn't happen, that doesn't that mean that nothing's reliable. That's probably not the most mature way to handle this. And then there's many people who say, I don't care what the scholars say. I care what God says. And this is God's word, so I believe every single bit of it. If God said it, that settles. What is it? God settles it. I believe it. God said it. I believe it, that settles it. Thank you very much. I'm bad at Christian cliches. And then there's this middle ground where most scholars live that says something probably happened. We even have some evidence historically and archaeologically that something happened, but maybe not on the scale that it says here in the book. And see, the reason that this is not crazy is that it, to us, this sounds crazy. If you say this is a book of history, you're a heretic if it didn't happen exactly the way it said it happened. I've been told that. But actually, for ancient hearers and authors, this is a normal thing to have what Aaron was speaking to, which is a mythologized history. Something happened to our people. But see, the biggest, the most important part is, what does this story that we've told for generations say about God? And what does this story that we've told for generations that say about God, and what does that mean for us as God's people? That's the important stuff of the book of Exodus. That's the important stuff of historical books in, in, in the Hebrew scriptures. It's theological history. The point of it is telling us about who this God is and who we should be in light of this God. And kind of telling a story in a grand way to point to bigger purposes was a very common practice in ancient Near Eastern literature. So it's theological history that's super important to remember. The second thing that we were kind of hinting at, but it's really important to remember, and we're going to get at this this morning, is what Exodus is. And an Exodus is not a book in and unto itself. Exodus is not, is not a book that stands alone, even though we take each book of the Bible as standing alone. The book of Exodus is, is like a chapter in a larger book called what? Pentateuch, thank you, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. There's many ancient Jews in Jesus' time who believed that the, the first five books of the Bible were the only piece of the scriptures that they, could, they needed to, to study and memorize and actually live by. And whether you, you followed just the Torah or the Torah plus the writings and the prophets and all the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, you saw these first five books of the Bible as the most important books of the Bible. But Exodus is the one chapter within this larger story that begins in Genesis and goes to Deuteronomy. And that's how we need to see it. I'm going to be very tempted to keep going in the Pentateuch. Pray that I don't, because it'll get really long and arduous. But I make no promises. So we'll find this morning that it's part of this larger narrative. And then I want to point out, just to remind us over and over again what Beulah said. And that is that there is a, the biblical scholars use this fancy word called a hermeneutic. Hermeneutic. What does hermeneutic mean? 
I'm going to not put anyone on the spot besides Zach Domach, who's our resident church historian, biblical scholar. What does hermeneutic mean, Zach? A perspective or a lens that you view something through, which you do for everything, just so you know. So the perspective or the lens, we have a lens that we're going to be reading Exodus by, and there's a very good reason for it. The lens that we're going to be reading Exodus through and by is a person, and his name's Jesus. See, last week I... I, I had you guys raise your hands if you are one of those sadistic people who read the end of the book first when you come to a book. Anybody do that? Let's just shame the people again. I don't understand it still. Thought about it this week. I still don't get you. But see, we get to do that with the Bible. And it's really good to do that with the Bible because we know the end of the story. The end of the story is that the incarnation happened. God became a a human being and in Jesus showed us what it means to be human and showed us what it means to be God. And then God died on, 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 on a cross and rose again and conquered the grave and ascended into heaven and has the victory. We know the end of the story, friends. The Exodus is just the second book in the scriptures. But we get the privilege that the first hearers and readers of this ancient text didn't get. We know how the story ends up. And so what we're going to be doing, which is what the, the writers of the New Testament did, we are going to be reading Exodus through the lens and the perspective of Jesus. And so that means... If something seems inconsistent about this God that we find in Exodus with Jesus, we're going to look to Jesus for the answers. That means that if we find something like violence in the book of Exodus or throughout the Old Testament and it doesn't fit with this God we find in Jesus, we're going to look to Jesus for the answers because the writers of the New Testament sure thought and Jesus himself sure thought that the, all of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So if we don't understand something, we go to Jesus. If we have an issue with something, we go to Jesus. And if you don't like what you find in Jesus, that's where I just got to tell you, I'm sorry. Because Jesus is our hermeneutic. Jesus is our Messiah, our rabbi, our teacher, our, our, our savior, our everything. So we always read all of Scripture through the lens of Christ. So last week, we didn't get a chance to dive into the book of Exodus because we were learning about the book of Exodus. Let's actually dive into it this week. We're going to go through the whole first chapter of the book of Exodus, and let's just start together in Exodus 1. The text is up there if you want it. There's Bibles in front of you if you like Seeing the Bible. Exodus 1.1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Now let's stop right there. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Now, right off the bat, we are at an... A weakness. We have we, right off the bat. We're, we're, we 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 don't have this really important word that starts out the book of Exodus in the Hebrew and the English and the NIV. It just right just starts right into it. These are the names. As a matter of fact, in Hebrew, that's what the book, what the word Exodus, the the 
the word for Exodus in Hebrew is these are the names. It's just, it's named after the first few words. In the Septuagint, the Greek New Testament that we learn from and has been translated, it's exodus. It means the way out. But there's a really important Hebrew word that's in the original that's not in our NIV, in our, in our English translation, and that word is the Hebrew word wow. Very simple word, W-A-W. Now that word is translated into English as the really interesting word, and. And. Now this is probably the most important and I've ever talked about. I've never highlighted the word and, but in the, in the first version of Exodus that we know of, it says, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. And. Now why might that be important? It's a connection from one way before. Here's the deal. We, we, our, our English Bible translators get, the, get order. We're a people about, that care about order an awful lot. And so we have these headings and subheadings within the chapters of the Bible. And we have everything taken care of by book and by chapter, all that stuff. But the original Hebrew says, and these are the names. It's a continuation of the story that was started in Genesis. You can't go into the story that's being told in Exodus within, and understand it without knowing the story in the book of Genesis. So this is where if you're new to the church and you don't, you're not super familiar with the, the story of the book of Genesis, you're going to be at a disadvantage. Well, I want to tell you what the book of Genesis is all about in, a, in like four sentences or less. Here's what the book of Genesis is about, in Randy Nye translation or paraphrase. In the beginning was God. And God existed, we find in Genesis 1, in mysterious ways, in relationship. God refers to God's self as us in the very first chapter of the Bible. So there's this triune God that we find in the book of Genesis that existed from all eternity. And this God who existed in relationship and in celebration and collaboration and love and in compassion and kindness towards God's self, wanted to share God's self. Is this making sense? God existed for all times, and God just had to, wanted, God, the triune God wanted to share themselves, and so they created humanity to be image bearers, to be these mirrors of the divine, to show God, to, to put on display throughout the world what God is like. See, God wanted to share God's self, and God wanted a people to call God's own. Are you following me? So God starts in Genesis 1 and 2, but we know Genesis 3, everything goes wrong. God's people that, he create, that God created to, to have for God's own, to reflect the glory and beauty of who God is, go their separate ways in Genesis 3. And say, I choose not to trust you and believe the deceiver. And then the rest of the story of Genesis is the story of this God who pursues a people who's running from God. I'm cheating. I'm going over three or four sentences. <laughs> but this God in Genesis 12 then comes to Abraham, this man Abram and it says, I'm going to turn you into a family against all odds. And even though Abram and his wife Sarai, they sin, they, 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 they lack to trust God, and Abraham's kids forget to trust God, but this God doesn't care. God just keeps on pursuing this people because God wants a people for his own. 
And the story of Exodus is a continuation. God has a people now in the, in the book of Genesis. In the book of Exodus, God's people are in trouble. God's people don't see God in God's presence around them. And they're wondering where God is and if God really exists. God really does exist and does God, does God care about his people? And the book of Exodus is the story that tells us where is God, what does God think, and does God care about God's people? Is God going to deliver God's people? Is God going to come through? And is a really important word, so let's continue then. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. It's assuming you just know the story of Joseph and the 12 sons of, of, of Jacob and all that went down and how they the brothers hated Joseph. They sold him into slavery. He wound up with the Egyptians. The, he, he had, God's favor was on him, he, and he rose to prominence in this, the biggest empire in the world at that time. Then Jacob and the Israelite people go to Egypt because there's a famine. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. This is really fast-forwarding. Well, first of all, let me just point this out. When we get to the Bible in the, in the beginning of some biblical books, we come to a bunch of names. And they drive us mostly crazy, am I right? You want to get bored, read the first part of the book of First Chronicles. It's just a bunch of names. These genealogies, these are the names of the sons of Israel who went into the land of Egypt. And then just goes through names. The book of Matthew starts with, a bunch of names. And these genealogies, when, if, we're, if we're trying to accomplish reading the Bible in one year, those are the worst to get through in the laws, right? We see no significance in them whatsoever. But see, to the ancient readers and hearers of this word, they meant something. Do you know what these genealogies meant? The significance of these genealogies, these names. See, the significance of these genealogies that we just kind of gloss over to is that it roots these people in the past to the people who've gone before them. It's a, it's a discipleship tool of saying, I know you're asking all these questions. I know you're wondering where God is. And I want to remind you that you have a past and a history and a story of God and his people before you. It roots the hearers and readers of the Bible in the past. This is why we do this weird, crazy thing, like read from a book that's probably about 2,500 years old, or 2,700 years old, and actually took place maybe 32 to 35, 4,000 years ago. That's weird. It's crazy. But we do it just like the original readers and hearers did because it roots us in the past and it tells the story of God's faithfulness. That's what these genealogies do. So now Joseph and all his brothers in verse 6, and all that generation died. Time to zoom and fast forward. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was full with, filled with them. Now let's pause exceedingly fruitful, multiplied 
greatly. What kind of language is this, if we're paying attention? Creation language, right? Michelle, can you put up Genesis 1.28? In the very beginning of the story of creation of all that is and of humanity, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, the, be stewards over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then the flood happens, this flood story, this flood narrative, where God kind of wants to start over. In Genesis 9-1, what does it say there? Then God blessed Noah and said to his, and his son, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Scholars call this the creation mandate. And what the writer of the book of Exodus is trying to tell us is that this blessing of God that God gives over God's people in the very beginning in Genesis 1, and this blessing of God that God gives over his people after the flood happens is actually happening. This ragtag group of people that have their roots in this man named Abraham and this woman named Sarah, they are actually doing, they, they are living under God's blessing. They are multiplying greatly. They are exceedingly fruitful. They are filling the land. In the Hebrew, it says that the land is swarming with them. There's something on this people, and it has nothing to do with how good or bad they are. It has to do with the blessing of God, pointing us back again in Exodus to Genesis. In verse 8, then it says, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, this new king, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Now we got some things to discuss here. So, the writer of the book of Exodus, or the writers of the book of Exodus, are trying to get us to, to, to remember back to Genesis. And if you remember back to Genesis, Joseph goes to Egypt and it, God turns tragedy into triumph. He interprets the, the Pharaoh's dreams, if you remember. He comes to a place of prominence. Pharaoh, this Pharaoh that encounters Joseph, realizes that the blessing of God is on this guy. Like, I, there's something about this guy that I need to listen to. Obviously, he's blessed. And so he blesses Joseph, and he gives him a place of honor, and he's blessed because of it. So you hear the story. But then in Exodus it says, a new king came to power. A new king who didn't give a rip about Joseph and his family and the Hebrew people. Now, this is interesting. This is just kind of I'm going to do this along the way, but pointing you to what we talked about at the first week. We're only two weeks out from the first week, so it's going to be fresh. But remember when we said that the Exodus is not an actual book of literal history? That's not the purpose of it. The purpose is theological history. This is something that drives scholars nuts. The writers of the book of Exodus didn't care about naming which king or pharaoh this was. 
And this has literally driven biblical scholars nuts. There, if you go and find, try to find who was the Pharaoh during the book of Exodus, there might be one, there might be two, and there's, there's a couple of good guesses because we know the names of the Pharaohs. We have good archaeological evidence of the Egyptian empire. But see, the writer of the book of Exodus didn't give a rip about the name of the king of Egypt. This man is the most important, most powerful man in the world at this time. And the writers of the book of Exodus say, he doesn't matter. See, this book isn't just about him. But we find that this king that came to power didn't give a rip about Joseph and about the Israelite people. As a matter of fact, when this king came to power and he, he looked at the Israelite people, he saw this blessing on them and he saw it as a curse. He got really threatened by this people who were multiplying greatly and exceedingly fruitful, living under the blessing of God. And see, when the first Pharaoh who encountered Joseph saw this blessing, he recognized it and saw it and blessed it and gave Joseph a place of honor. He blessed this people that were a blessing. And what happened? He was blessed because of it and his people were as well. This is, there's this narrative that's, that, the, that the writers are trying to get, bring us into, and that is this first Pharaoh saw this blessing of God and said, I, I'm going to honor that, and I'm going to honor their God, and I'm going to be blessed because of it. And now the second king comes onto the scene. He doesn't give a rip about Joseph, and he doesn't give a rip about Joseph, Joseph's God. He sees this blessing, and he feels threatened. The Bible is trying to, the writers of the story are trying to show us what it looks like to live in an abundance mindset and what it lives, looks to live, look, live like in a scarcity mindset and what happens when you do. See, the purposes of God, as we saw in the book of Genesis, is to have a people for God's self, and God wants to bless that people, to, to ex multiply greatly and ex be exceedingly fruitful. And then when they are blessed by God, they are called to be a blessing to the people around them. That's what happened when in the end of the book of Genesis. It's put on display when you live in that blessing and when you live in this abundance mentality that God is blessing us and we can actually be a blessing to the people around us, good things happen. This is what Exodus is trying to tell us. But when you live in this scarcity mindset and you see these people who seem to be blessed and you get when you're not living in this abundance mindset, you get this scarcity mindset and you feel threatened and you start to do really awful things because of that scarcity mindset that you're living in. When you look at the world around you, you say, this is, this is for me and my people, nobody else. That's not living in the way of the purposes of the God, of the Torah, of the Pentateuch. When you look around you and you say, let me, have, let me keep all of it for myself, it's living in a scarcity mindset. But when you say, look at the way God has blessed me, I'm going to share all that I have. That's what the first Pharaoh, the first king of Egypt did in the, in the scriptures. He was blessed because of it. Now we have this contrast, and it's going to be rearing its head throughout the narrative. Also, I'm just going to say a little bit about this because... You, this will be perceived as being political, but I'm just going to say it because it's in the scriptures. So if you think this is political, blame the Bible, not me. I'm serious. Who were the Hebrew people to the Egyptians? They were immigrants. Why were the Israelite people in Egypt to begin with? There was a famine all throughout the land. 
and where Jacob and his sons and his family and the people of Israel were. There was no food, and so they migrated to Egypt to live in that abundance. They're immigrants. The first king of Egypt that we encounter in the book of Genesis sees this blessing and wants to invite this people in and, and is blessed because of it. The second king of Egypt that we find in the book of Exodus in the Pentateuch sees this nation of immigrants in his land and is threatened by them and thinks they might become too numerous and they might vote me out even though this was not a democracy. Or they might join with our enemies and overthrow us. He lives in the scarcity mindset. I'm just, gonna, I'm just trying to point out what's in the scriptures. That's it. Take a deep breath. Randy's done being, I'm not being political, the Bible is. Last part of this chapter, this story, and it gets good here. 11.04, all right. So, new king of Egypt doesn't care about Joseph or, or his people. He, he enslaves the Hebrew people. He oppresses the Hebrew people because of the scarcity mindset. He's threatened by them, so he, he, he becomes this oppressor. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew woman during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that baby is a boy, kill him. That should shed, send shivers down your spine. When you are helping the Hebrew woman during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see a, that the baby is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God. The word is Elohim here. We're going to get to know God's name later in this book, but here it's Elohim. The, that's just the, the generic word for God. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. I love this. They are vigorous. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. We can't help it. What the actual, more accurate translation there is, Jewish scholars say, is they are animals, which is actually playing into a racial stereotype and, and bias that the Egyptians had towards the Israelites. We'll go into that in a minute. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. This is more of that Genesis blessing. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. And we'll get to that next week. So we find this subversive part in the story here as the chapter closes out, the first chapter in the book of Exodus. And we find the most unlikely people that you would guess to find. And that's two women. See, if you're familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures, there's not a whole lot of women in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's not because God hates women. It's because this is a patriarchal world that the Bible was written in, and nobody mentioned women in the writings. So when women are mentioned in an ancient Near Eastern text, you need to pay attention. Something's happening. Now, what's 
also interesting. So Shifra means beautiful, and Pua means sparkling. How cool is that, first of all? But also, think about in this first chapter of the book of Exodus, who gets named and who does not. See, when a person is named, that means they are significant. When a person is not named, that's the impl implication that they are not in this culture and in this world. And the writers of the book of Exodus see fit to name these two insignificant, normally unnamed women, Shifra and Pua, but we don't even get the name of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. That is subversive, sacred text, friends. That's saying something. And what it means is, see, the king of Egypt, he got it all wrong when he was given his decision of what to do when encountered by the blessing of God. But see, these two women are example for us. These two women are these brave, scandalous, and subversive women who dare deceive the, the most powerful man in the world. Now, what does this, does this story remind you of anything? I love it. I see your faces thinking hard. It's a story that harkens back to the third chapter of Genesis, of the third chapter of the Bible. Eve, the first woman, being deceived by a deceiver. He's trying to get her to distrust the heart of God, and she falls for it, right? But see, this story here, perhaps the writers of the book of Exodus are saying this is a reversal that's redeeming the story of Eve and these two women, who when they're confronted by a snake who wants to deceive them and bring death, they see it and recognize it, and they fear God more than they fear this most powerful person in the world. This is a reversal of the work of Eve happening in these two subversive, insignificant women who get named in the first chapter of the Bible. See, in the first chapter of the book of Exodus, the, the deliverer of the oppressed people is not Moses. In the first chapter of the book of Exodus, the, the deliverer of the, the God's people, the God's oppressed people is not Aaron or any other powerful dude. It's these two brave, courageous, in their culture, insignificant midwives who dare to stand up to the most powerful man in the world and say, I can recognize God's ways and I can recognize the ways of the world, and I am not falling for it. See, these two midwives show us what it looks like to be people who are living in an empire. And just as the ancient oral hearers of this word of the original book of Exodus were, just like the original readers of this ancient word, the Biblical scholars believe Exodus, the book of Exodus and the Pentateuch didn't get actually written down until the Israelites were in captivity in Babylon in about the 6th or 7th century B.C. These were oral traditions told, handed down generation after generation after generation, and finally in Babylon they started writing them down. And so they're reading them as a people who are oppressed and in captivity letting God teach them about what God has done for his people when they were oppressed in captivity before. And what they find is that 
the, what God is looking for is the bravery and the courage of these two subversive women who are willing to stand up to the empire and say, I will not live in the way of the empire. I will not live in the way of death. I see a bigger story being told here. And I'm going to put my life on the line in order to follow God. So help me out here. We're at the end of the sermon. Just breathe a big sigh of relief. If you were the pastor, if you were the preacher who had to bring up some application from the story, what would some applications be? Let me hear you. There's no wrong answers. You don't need power to change things. I like that, Jacob. Thank you. You don't need power to change things. Not in God's economy, that's for sure. As a matter of fact, sometimes in God's economy, power keeps you from making that change. Fear God before fearing other things, even the most powerful person in the world, even the most powerful empire who's oppressing God's people. Good applications. Anything else? We're called to do what is right in God's eyes. Who cares what the rest of the world says? And that's what living in God's purposes and will looks like. Yes. Don't, consi- uh, don't underestimate the other. Don't underestimate the ones in the story and the ones in your world that you actually just look over and look by, look through like insignificant people. Who is that in your world? Who are you tempted to look by and see as insignificant? See, because the insignificant people in the story changed the story. One more, Hannah. Ooh. See, this is why this is fun. I didn't have that one written down. Name the people in the past, in your past, who affected change in your life. I just lost a family member this two weeks ago. I officiated his funeral. And naming the beautiful things in his past, naming the things in our family fed my soul. Naming the names in the past who changed your story. See, here's a story, friends, where we're being called. Here's my, here's my points the thing that you haven't gotten that I wrote down. There's news stuff happening all the time. There's disgusting, terrible, awful, heartbreaking conflict happening in the Middle East where Israeli and Palestinian families are ripped apart. And we don't know what to do sometimes. Or sometimes, or there's conflict in Ukraine. Or there's conflict in Washington, D.C. in the House of Representatives. There's blame being thrown around. And there's narratives that are being spoken to. Here's the thing that these two submissive women did that too few of us do as we're following Jesus. It's that's that as they saw what was happening, they elevated their gaze and saw these meta-narratives. See, too often we're just distracted by the minutia, the nitty-gritty of the news. 
and where we believe and say and toe the party line that we're told we have to, if I'm a Republican, I have to think this way about what's happening in Israel and Palestine. If I'm a Democrat, I have to think this way about what's happening. If I'm a, if I, if whatever my party or my group or my ideology is and says, that's what I think and believe, right? Don't be embarrassed. Everybody in this room and watching online does the same thing. But see, these two ladies didn't go and toe the party line. These two ladies, as they were seeing what was happening in the world, saw a bigger perspective, and that's what we're called to do as well, friends. The empire is always going to be trying to convince us of what the narrative is, but there's always a bigger narrative, and that's what God is saying, and that's what God is trying to draw us into, seeing injustice for what it is and being unwilling to, to cooperate with it, seeing oppression where it's happening, even if it's hard to recognize, and refusing to be a party to it, that's what this story is calling us to do. That's what these subversive, courageous, bold women named Shifra and Pua are calling us into. Jesus, would you help us walk in the ways of these crazy, bold, strong, brave, courageous women? Would you help us to to live with abundance mindsets rather than scarcity mindsets? Would you help us to recognize your work in your hand and your, the themes that you're calling us to see in the world as we get bombarded by headlines and news and, and hear from talking heads? Would you help us elevate our gaze to see what you are calling us, how, what you are calling us to live into in this world? The positions that you are calling us to take, no other. And would you give us the courage to speak those out and to live into those in the ways that these ladies did? 